This week on Grubstakers, we have a special interview with Reed Hunt, author of the new book, A Crisis Wasted, Barack Obama's Defining Decisions. Hear all about what he thinks about the 44th president's early decisions, his advisors, and what he wishes he would have told him to do differently. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in real estate. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway... Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm here. I'm joined by my friends. Yogi Polywell. Andy Palmer. And uh, we got a special episode this week. As I just mentioned there, we're usually discussing a a particular billionaire and their uh, effects on the system. But I did just uh, read this uh, wonderful book, a new book called A Crisis Wasted, Barack Obama's Defining Decisions. And it's by uh, a man named Reed Hunt. And uh, I read the book and I loved it. And I actually looked up the man, and he agreed to join us on the podcast and talk about this new book. So I am very happy to uh, welcome our guest today, Reed Hunt. I'm happy to be here. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Reed. Uh, again, thanks for joining us. And I, I did learn that you were actually the chairman of the FCC from 1993 to 1997. So I just wanted to congratulate you up top on becoming the first FCC chairman to appear on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks for that. Uh, inventing podcasts was certainly part of our plan. <laughs> so maybe not exactly specifically, but we certainly were there in the salad days of the Internet and the beginning of digital cellular. And we really did know that the entire media landscape would change. And and uh, we're happy that you are illustrating the fact that all of us uh, who saw the future as being completely different were right. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were, uh, and we're, we're still waiting for Ajit Pai to return our emails. So hopefully he'll be the second. But me too. Yeah, I'm waiting. <laughs> it's probably uh, buried under fifteen thousand every day about net neutrality. But um, but yeah. So as you know, a chairman, a former chairman of the FCC, you do actually have uh, a perspective on the Obama presidency from the you know how the sausage is made, whereas we're just kind of on the outside throwing stones. So I just wanted to ask you first if you could give our audience kind of a short overview of who you are, how you know uh, President Obama, and also why you decided to write this book about uh, the early years of the Obama presidency. So uh, I got involved in politics uh, because of the people that I met in high school and college and law school. Uh, I went to high school with Al Gore and and later in the 1980s, I went to high school in the 1960s with Al Gore. And later in the 1980s, I started helping on his campaigns. And then it turned out that in my class in law school, there were the Clintons. And uh, I remember standing there next to Bill Clinton talking about what we were going to do after school. And he said, I think I'm going to go down to Arkansas and just start running for things. <laughs> That's what he did. And uh, ultimately, uh, one of those things was the presidency. And then he asked uh, Gore to be the vice president. And about a year and a half later, uh, after they met and and they had the electoral victory, I became the FCC chairman. Uh, I'm sure it was a meritocratic process. I didn't (laughs) actually have to. I didn't actually have to interview anybody. Uh, The two of them thought it was okay. and that's how I got into into that wonderful job at that wonderful time. I spent a lot of money in the late 90s raising money for Al after I'd gone out of the government. And, you know, hopefully, you know, he was going to be the president. I'd go back into the Gore administration. That didn't quite happen by 500 hanging chads <laughs> in Florida. And then uh, do, you, do you wake up every night and blame Pat Buchanan? There's a lot of lot of lot of wake ups uh, took occur took took place in those days, <laughs> and then um, I was introduced uh, by a friend to Barack Obama in 2003, mm-hmm. and my friend said to me, uh, "This guy could go all the way," which in Washington language means could be the president, mm-hmm. 
at the time he was beginning to get supporters for a run for the Senate in Illinois. He was the long shot candidate. Um, I gave him a little bit of money, probably should have given him more. Uh, <laughs> he got elected to the Senate. And then uh, to make a uh, interesting story really, really short, in March of 2007, at my house, we hosted the first fundraiser for Barack Obama in a house not owned by David Geffen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was a big success. And I, he won, and I ended up on his transition team in the fall of 2008. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you knew Al Gore in high school. What was he like then? Ninth grade. Well, he was he was a he was. I don't know if he met anyone in high school like this, but you know, back in the day you would identify someone and say, well, that person's going to be the president. I don't know if you guys had that experience. Uh, But I really did feel that way about Al Gore, and I felt that way about Bill Clinton in law school. Uh, Now, I should admit to you all that I knew George W. Bush pretty well in college, and I did not feel that way about (laughs) George. So, so, you know, feelings aren't everything. But the point is... um, the point is that Al's father was a senator and he knew about politics and he was a very striking personality with a big brain and a tremendous vision about what to do, you know, with public service. Uh, and the similarly, Bill Clinton, um, two of the smartest people that I've ever met. And I've met a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me. And, and they were two of the smartest of that uh, in that in that category. Um so I had a lot of luck by who I met and stumbled into a lot of good situations. And one of them was the transition in 2008. And I ended up talking a little bit uh, to pretty much all the people who were involved in the decision making. Yeah, yeah. When the years passed, I decided I would write a book about that decision making. And I interviewed about four dozen of them. And I couldn't figure out what the conclusion of the book was until November of 2016. Did something happen then? And when Donald (laughs) Trump became the president, thanks to the Electoral College, I... I said, boy, this is a this is not a happy story. The end of this book (laughs) is that somehow these decisions that were made with an awful lot of good intentions by all of Obama's advisors and by the president-elect, somehow they've led to the election of the single worst person in the world (laughs) for Barack Obama to imagine as his successor, a guy whose campaign consisted of promises that he would undo everything that Obama had done that he would reverse the polarity of the ethical compass of the nation and uh, the person who had even denied that Barack Obama was born in the United States. Hmm. And that's the guy who replaced him. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say reading your book was, it was very fascinating to me because, you know, we all know like the broad strokes of this story, but, you know, reading it like and actually seeing inside some of the meetings and stuff. I mean, it's it was like reading a horror movie where you know how it's going to end. And, yes. you know, you feel like shouting at the screen and telling Obama not to go into that room with Tim Geithner, you know. Uh, yes. That yes. was that was my takeaway. Um, yes, it's like, and then now we're wondering, like, oh, God, Freddy Krueger, you know, <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Don't let there be a part two. Right. <laughs> right? Isn't that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You may remember that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street ends with Freddy Krueger coming out of the mirror and grabbing the protagonist's mother and dragging her to her death. (laughs) (laughs) That is how you know that there's going to be a sequel, right? Indeed. That's how you know. So I'm thinking, like, is the Mueller report the same thing as that mirror? That's how you know there's going to be a sequel? Oh, my God. I think uh, Mitch McConnell just introduced that on the Senate floor. <laughs> um, but there you I, go. I did want to want to ask you because you do describe these these meetings uh, with Obama's transition team, where you meet you you have this idea that maybe you could briefly describe to us about pitching for Obama stimulus a green energy bank, and you're yeah. you're meeting with yeah. like Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, and you're asking for about 
three different green energy banks, about $10 billion each in the stimulus. And I just wanted to like read a quick little quote. Um, you talk to uh, Tim Geithner, and he asks you, where is this coming from? And you say, I'm a policy entrepreneur. And then he says, I like that term. And the conversation ends. And then you speak with Larry Summers, and you quote him as saying, the problem is you're talking about creating more debt. Our economic problem is that the country already has too much debt. And this is in December 2008 when the entire um, economy is in free fall. So it just seems like their priorities were, were entirely backwards. Their priorities were different. Uh, the British historian Maitland uh, said it's very important to remember that things now in the past were once in the future. And I remember and I want to not forget that at the time I was talking to those decision makers, those key advisors, they were quite terrified about what else might happen after the Lehman bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Not terrified in the sense that they were running around with their heads cut off, but they were more worried and concerned about the state of the economy than they had ever been in their professional lives. Okay, I, you know, you get that, I get that, we can understand that. What I was trying to say to them is, this is, well, as Rahm Emanuel had already said at the time, a crisis is too good to waste. Mm -hmm. This is a situation where you can create uh, the kinds of institutions that politically were never possible before. And one of them should be, or three of them should be, different green banks that could invest in the infrastructure so that we would be mm, doing business and conducting society on a clean energy platform. Right. They weren't against it, but it wasn't the priority. And the first rule of priority is you only get to have one top priority. Now, uh uh, hey, this is Andy. I, one thing I thought that was uh, interesting uh, when I was reading your book was that uh, you were very uh, critical of neoliberalism. And um, just now you also said that like Bill Clinton and uh, Al Gore were some of the smartest people that uh, you've ever met. And I was I was wondering, like, uh, as they're uh, very much uh, prototypical uh, neoliberal politicians, how do you think that kind of came to be do you think it was like a confluence of just the circumstances in which they came up in politics um or maybe other factors so uh short answer to an incredibly important and this insightful question uh in the 1980s all democrats that i knew could not figure out how a democrat would ever again get elected president right Ronald Reagan had a solid lock on the old Confederacy. 20 years earlier, it had been uh, Democratic. Now it was solidly Republican. And then Reagan had cemented that with the votes of most of the people in most of the rest of the states. And it just didn't seem to be any way for a Democrat to ever win the Electoral College. And, and what were they to do? And so in reaction... Uh, there was Gary Hart who said, well, you know, well, let's have a thing called Atari Democrats. What is Atari? That was like, <laughs> you know, the pre-computer computer, right? Mm -hmm. But what he meant was let's get aligned with the tech industry. And others thought, well, you know, let's let's get, let's be aligned with the military instead of against it in the continuing reaction to Vietnam. In other words, there was a search for building a coalition that could compete with the Republicans and get a Democrat elected. Mm -hmm. And and the Bill Clinton campaign was the gluing together of a new coalition. One of the fundamental pieces of that coalition was to have allies instead of enemies on Wall Street. And the fundamental view that Bill Clinton allied with on Wall Street was marketplace economics that that markets capitalism would produce tremendous growth in the economy and as bob rubin uh used to say the best social policy is a rapidly growing economy mm -hmm. well you can't dispute that a rapidly growing economy is a lot better than the opposite and when the different events associated with the internet and digital cellular led to a tremendous tech boom in the mid 90s and people used to call me and say, what did you do? And I said, well, you know, we did some important things, but frankly, the technology is just taking off and the entire economy grew very, very rapidly. And all of a sudden, instead of running a deficit, the government budget was in surplus. 
And I would say that generally speaking, Democrats overinterpreted all of this and thought, oh, the market always works out really great. But the answer is it doesn't. And indeed, the tech boom in the economy popped sadly right before, just months before the election in November of 2000. And then even more catastrophically, the markets went nuts in 2007, six in real estate. And then starting in 2007, the real estate market began to decline. And what I'm telling you is that the cycles of market behavior over these decades should have taught everyone that there's a very important role for government as a stabilizer and as a repair mechanism and as the voice of the public interest. But that lesson was not believed and absorbed in 2007 and 2008. Hmm. And so the government didn't step in when it needed to step in. This was the Bush government. And there was what Henry James called a failure of the imagination of disaster. So then would you say that like um, uh, some of the the boom in the 90s kind of might have given um, some of the members then of the uh, Obama administration um, when they had to deal with the disaster, maybe like a false confidence in the markets? That's exactly right. Okay. Or, Or you might even add in the belief that even in the crisis, if government did only what was necessary, but not what was possible, that the necessary would be good enough. Hmm. And yeah, and, and I would say one of the central arguments I took away from reading your book is you actually had a, a chapter entitled Obama picked his people and thus his policies. And you describe right. uh, John Podesta, then the head of the Center for American Progress, as an influential uh, Clinton backer. He was put in charge of Obama's transition. And you actually describe these, uh, to me, kind of horrifying stories of Obama's economic advisors actually hiding information from him. Like you, they did that. You, you, you uh, go through how, essentially, uh, I think uh, Christy Romer and um, uh, Larry Summers actually calculated the stimulus should be like 1.7 or even 1.2 trillion. But uh, by agreement among the advisors, the highest option Obama was presented with was like an $850 billion stimulus. That's and, right. And then like another story that's that's not in your book, but that's by in a, in a book, uh, Confidence Men by Ron uh, Suskind, is essentially yep. in, in March 2009, Timothy Geithner uh, actually slow-walked Obama's instructions to break up Citigroup into a good bank, bad bank, and, and these kinds of things. So, I mean, I guess my question is, uh, is that fair to say that that's a central thesis of um, your book, is that Obama made a lot of the decisions of his presidency just by picking these people who were associated with the Clinton administration? Well, they're all they're all smart people. They're all good people. They all had reasons. If you could go back in time, you'd like to whisper in the president elect's ear. Ask them for better ideas. <laughs> you'd like to whisper in Barack Obama's ear and have him and say, tell him you want bolder choices. You'd like to whisper in his ear and say, tell him that if you can't explain it to the American people. It's not a good enough policy. Hmm. That's what you'd like to whisper in his ear. Ten years later, I wrote a book saying, I wish we could have whispered that in his ear. I have asked myself, why why write this book? It's There's a lot of uh, crying over spilt milk here. <laughs> um, the answer to that question, you didn't ask it, but I've asked myself. The answer to that question is, all the candidates running now who want to be the president they need to learn from something. Maybe they could learn from this history. Hmm. Maybe they could learn that they cannot be successful as candidates, or maybe they could be successful as candidates, but they can't be successful as presidents if they don't have a range of options that include very bold choices. They can't be successful as presidents if they don't insist to all their advisors that they be given solutions and not just steps towards solutions. And they have to make all their decisions really, really early. Barack Obama is the only president in the entire history of the United States who made all the decisions that determined the entire arc of his presidency before he was even inaugurated. Wow. Hmm. 
that's the way things go in you know the rapid pace of the economy today and the necessity for him was precipitated by the financial crisis that in turn was caused by the bailout or excuse me the non-bailout of Lehman Brothers on September 15 but for all of them if they don't make their decisions really really early and implement them whoever is the president is going to find that the moment has slipped away now now by the way Elizabeth Warren announced just today that she was going to basically totally reduce student lending between one and two trillion dollars of fix. You know, God bless her. That is a bold idea. Right. Well, and that is the kind of idea that you have to entertain at this stage. And you can't be so cautious and so worried about the votes in Michigan or Wisconsin (laughs) that you don't put the big idea out there. That's one of the ideas that could have been put in place in the stimulus package in the winter of 2008 and 2009. Yeah, I was going to say, just in your book, specifically on the student loans thing, you make the point that student loans were about $500 billion in 2008, and now they're about triple that. So you you do make the point that essentially we're giving these 0 to 1% interest rate loans, so you could have just refinanced student debt using that same mechanism. Um, That's right. Yeah. And uh, one thing I, I was uh, wondering is, like, one of the main criticisms of the Obama administration, of course, is that um, many of his policies, uh, as as you were alluding to, were kind of um, pitched uh, where he had already compromised in hopes of, like, working with the Republicans. Um, would you say then that uh, some of that was just because he wasn't given, I, I guess you would say, stronger options to negotiate with? You know, Al Capone said, I like to negotiate, but I prefer to negotiate with a gun in my hand. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, if I could go back and do it over over again, I would say, you know, to President-elect Obama, make the Republicans an offer. Make them offers they really shouldn't refuse. But if they refuse, then figure out how you're going to get it done without them. Hmm. Don't spend months and months in the critical early going of your administration trying to please them because if you've already given them an offer that they couldn't refuse and they still refused it you needed to go ahead without them this is true with respect to energy it is true with respect to health care it was true with respect to the stimulus it was true with respect to housing Hmm. you know at one point in the summer of two of night of 2000 excuse me in the summer of 2009 in that summer he had 60 votes in the senate Hmm. not for long due to the tragic death of ted kennedy but he had 60 votes and he could have pushed through everything when he had those 60 votes or he could have decided early in 2009 to go ahead and get rid of the filibuster the way that it's already been eliminated now which is why Justice Kavanaugh is sitting on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. So the point is, there were there were options. Yeah. Putting yourself in the um, power of the opposition party, not a good idea. Well, there's there's two questions or a couple questions I wanted to ask you specifically on mortgages and foreclosures because to me, one of the most horrifying things that happened with the crisis was the foreclosure crisis, and um, you write about this. And I believe what you write is that the plan that Obama was presented with was to accept essentially 5 million foreclosures. The actual number is probably close, that happened is probably closer to 9 to 10 million foreclosures, which is absolutely horrifying to me. Yes, I think it was three and a half. But what he was told on December 16, 2008 was, we expect about 5 million foreclosures. In fact, that was about half the number that ultimately did occur in one uh, shape, form or fashion. So there was a horrible underestimation of the seriousness uh, uh, of the housing problem. But he was told specifically that about two-thirds of the five million, they weren't going to do anything about. And and that, that was not a good thing to accept. 
Yeah, and uh, you actually, you write about, uh, I think you did an interview with his political advisor, David Axelrod, and Axelrod told you that Obama's biggest frustration was housing, and he would even talk to, you know, Tim Geithner, Larry Summers about, there's got to be more we can do about foreclosures, and they would just kind of shrug their shoulders. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what I took away from the book. So, I mean, is that fair assessment of essentially his advisors just said, hey, we have to let the market sort itself out via foreclosure? You know, it's it's a. I think it's a fair assessment. I think that um, pretty much everybody involved, looking back, wishes that they had handled housing in a more aggressive way. Uh, at the time, you know, what can be said, you know, to explain the behavior. The there was there was then what you see now on steroids, which is a tremendous media machine for generating hatred and division in the country mm-hmm. and specifically uh the very uh, timid housing policy of the treasury department in early 2009 uh, led to a ranting and raving by rick santelli on cnbc right. about how he was going to go down and have a tea party in Lake Michigan because he was in Chicago at the uh, at the exchange and Wilbur Ross now the Secretary of Commerce said oh that's great if you're having a tea party I'll join you and that was actually the beginning of the tea party movement and so faced with this kind of wild irrational reaction you can see why people in government might might say we just don't want to take bold measures unfortunately that's that's the kind of reaction that they needed to ignore. Mm. Yes, well, unfortunately, fortunately, we don't have presidents who make decisions based off cable news anymore. <laughs> um, right, right. But yeah, and I guess just one other question on that, because I could talk about foreclosures for a long time, but I did just want to follow up on one thing. You, I think you say, if I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you say that TARP under Geithner, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, where Geithner had all this authority to spend you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, I think you say they only spent about $4.6 billion preventing foreclosure. Um, and I believe, according to your book, Two hundred billion was unspent. I believe the New York Times says about three hundred billion of TARP money was unspent. So it's, and I think the New York Times quotes Tim Geithner in some 2012 article as saying something to the effect of, "Even if I could buy more mortgages, I would not use TARP money to buy mortgages." And it's just so strange to me because they do have that model of FDR in the Great Depression and the homeowners uh, loan corporation just the government buys mortgages and then reduces the principal to something people can pay and actually turns a profit. So it, I guess I don't really have a question, but um, it is a great frustration of mine that you know maybe a lot of stuff in your book you quote people saying oh we just didn't have the 60 votes in the senate but here they have 200 or 300 billion dollars of tarp money they didn't use no 60 votes required you know they also had uh, unlimited authority under the law called hera or hera h-e-r-a mm-hmm. uh to pretty much do anything they wanted with fannie mae and freddie mac mm-hmm. uh, that anything they wanted could have included refinancing mortgages so that people who were underwater and could not on their own get the bank to refinance underwater, meaning the mortgage was bigger than the value of the house. They could have used Fannie or Freddie to refinance for those people who were underwater, about 40 percent of all families in America, Mm, um, and give them lower interest rates so that it would have been cheaper for them to stay in their house. What happened instead is the people with money, with capital, with other savings, even if they were underwater, because they had other money, they could refinance and get the benefit of the Fed lowering the interest rates. The people who didn't have any money outside their evaporated home equity, they were the ones who couldn't refinance. And so that would have been a bold, creative, but feasible way to address the underwater problem they decided before barack obama was ever inaugurated that they would not address the underwater problem Hmm. they never changed their mind about that it's extremely frustrating and i guess just one last question on that Uh, essentially you you know you want frustrating though it's 
this this directly directly over eight years created the opportunity for Donald Trump to be oh, the absolutely. president, right? Because the houses that were underwater in the sand states, mm-hmm. Nevada, California, Florida, Texas, they recovered their value much more quickly than the Midwestern states, because in the Midwest, people were migrating out. Hmm. And so there wasn't any new incoming population to drive up the demand for housing. So for them, not being able to refinance in the Midwestern states meant a decade of really, really depressing you know, economics at the kitchen table. Do I have to keep paying the mortgage on a house that isn't worth as much as the mortgage or do I leave? And if I leave, where do I go and where do I live? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you when families go through that for, you know, eight years, well, they switched from voting for Obama to voting for Trump eight years later. And that's actually what happened. Yeah. And and I guess just my, my one other question on essentially mortgages is you write about there was, as we know pretty well, there was a lot of fraud in uh, mortgages leading up to the crisis, you know, bundling these kind of no income, no asset, no job loans into mortgage-backed securities. There was a lot of fraud in the lead-up. And then, of course, with the actual process of foreclosing on millions of people, there was a lot of fraud that took place there. There was robo-signing. They were making up fake documents because they didn't do proper chain-of-title transfer to throw people out on the street. And then, of course, there was, in 2012, the federal government settled about this. Um, But but I guess just um, my question, and this is more just your opinion as a lawyer, uh, would be essentially because they made the policy choice not to nationalize Citigroup, not to nationalize Bank of America and some of these other uh, uh, firms, because their balance sheets were so vulnerable, um, and you had you know Attorney General Eric Holder talking about it keeps him up at night, the idea of uh, indicting a bank and then it you know f- collapsing. So I guess I'm just wondering if maybe the decision not to nationalize these banks meant that they had to protect bank balance sheets even from criminal liability so that part of the reason we didn't get any criminal prosecutions was it is so important to keep these private financial things alive that we can't afford to allow them to be exposed to criminal liability. Well, that's interesting. And um, I can't speak you know, to the mindset of everybody involved but I would say that I think the general reluctance to have the government own stock in the big banks that at one point were non-banks, the big Wall Street behemoths, the government reluctance to not own stock and to not direct their behavior at all, that's the essence of neoliberalism. <laughs> that was the way that the Bush people thought. That was the way Obama's advisors thought. That was the way Tim Geithner thought. And it's almost religious because the truth of the matter is that you know that the government is the backstop of these firms, as it has to be, because a functioning finance sector is essential to a functioning economy. So it's almost like you know, some kind of uh, psychological denial. You know, right. We know the government and the banks are fundamentally linked and are partners in China. The government controls them. In our country, we spend a lot of time denying that the government is the backstop. When it's obvious, when it is clearly the backstop, when it should be the backstop, well, given to reality and go ahead and exercise enough control that you can tell the banks what to do. Now, what are the things you would want to tell them to do? Don't pay these bonuses. You have to take a year off from the bonuses because it's simply outrageous. Uh, Number two, the one or two weakest of you simply have to be bought up by the others. There's no choice. We're telling you that that has to happen. Uh, Yes, the management in those firms has to leave. They have to be gone. They don't have to necessarily go to jail, but they have to be gone. The government didn't have any problem behaving this way with respect to General Motors. Hmm. The CEO was fired. The government put the company through bankruptcy. The creditors took a haircut. A lot of people took a loss. They came out of bankruptcy. We have a functioning General Motors today. But the banks were treated differently. And in retrospect, that difference was not a good idea. 
I do just want to say I was not expecting a former chairman of the FCC to be the first person to endorse the Chinese model on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say this about the Chinese. Uh, faced with the exact same facts, in November of 2008, they committed to a stimulus plan that if you translate it to American dollars and adjust for the relative sizes of the economy, what the Chinese did in 2008 is exactly, almost to the penny, what Christy Romer said was the right stimulus program in the United States. Hmm. Wow. It's... The result in China was they were looking at the possibility of one-third of all of their college graduates in 2008 not being able to find a job, and they were looking at the possibility of 13 million people working in the factories making all the products in the East actually losing their jobs. And instead of suffering that, they made sure that didn't happen. And the further result over a decade is that China has replaced the United States as the number one country whose investments drive the global economy. Hmm. Now, I've spent a lot of time in China, and let me tell you, having an authoritarian system like that, a system that endorses the kind of surveillance that puts nearly two million Muslims in the west of China in jail when they're spotted by technology, a system that, and there's many things to admire in China, but freedom is not one of those things right right and so to have it be that they become the global leader of investment in the global economy because they were bolder and more creative than we were in the crisis that's something sad hmm. oh hey reed this is steve jeffries i just jumped on i'm sorry i'm late <laughs> hi 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 um fascinating book um i couldn't finish all of it but um i said a one question, um, you talked about how important, well, a lot of presidents measure their success in terms of their first hundred days, and I think part of your book is focused on how um, it's actually the first, like, from starting from day negative 60 to day zero is often very important, too, as far as yep. choosing who your counsel is going to be and stating what your priorities are to them and then keeping tracks on what they're working on. So, um you know, we're, we've we've talked a little bit on this pod about what where are the drivers for the next crisis, basically. So, um, I mean, last time it was housing. Ten million people lost their homes. Um, incredible financial loss, but also in a lot of other ways, like health, psychology, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not be housing again. It could be, you know, a combination of other consumer debt. We've speculated about, like auto loans slash student loans slash other non-housing related consumer debt being a bubble at some point. Um, Maybe we've covered um, like Blackstone. Um, They've been buying up a lot of, a lot of the housing stock that they got at uh, a severe discount in like the early 2010s. Um, They're using a lot of corporate debt in order to buy that up. So I'm, Anyway, um, I guess my question is, what um, what could the next president, should they not be Trump, in 2020 do to really ensure things get out on the right foot? It's a really, really great question. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, the Trump administration and the Republican Congress uh, in their tax cut proposal Uh, quite knowingly, quite intentionally, has put the federal government in a much, much more difficult spot, uh, really, than it ever has been before. Meaning, uh, without appropriate investing in infrastructure, without appropriate investing in any of the five major platforms that undergird all society and the economy, they are a power and transportation and communications and sewage and water without that investment being increased in any way at all we've locked ourselves into years of tremendous deficits so this is the fundamental problem uh here's just one of many examples virtually every high voltage power line in the world right now is built in china A high voltage power line is the way to take clean power from 
a sunny area or a windy area and deliver it with almost no loss of electrons to an urban area. It's those high voltage power lines that should be bringing wind from the Great Plains to Chicago and sun from the southwest to Los Angeles and Houston, but they don't exist in our country. The president-elect asked for them, but he was told that they wouldn't be in the stimulus. They were built in China. I could tell you the same story about trains. I could tell you the same story about sewage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the number one job, in my view, since you asked, of all the candidates is to have the following commitment. Whether we have to raise taxes or whether we have to have a bigger deficit or whether we have to have public-private investment with the private sector, one way or another, or all those ways, we are going to rebuild America's infrastructure so that we are not just close to China, so that we're the country that simply you know is the best in the world in terms of clean power efficient transportation clean water really great sewage and oh broadband to everybody hmm. that's the number one thing because that's the that's kind of the platform for everything else you know it's on all of that that you build really great businesses that you have plenty of people working in construction that you have a delivery of all goods and services to everybody anywhere in the country. We just have to we just have to say we're going to get that done one way or another, a call to action. Right. And we're going to get that done one way or another. So boldness is the right answer, in my view, since you asked. And some of the some of the Democratic candidates are being bold and some of them are being really timid. And the ones that are being bold are the ones that I'm thinking, well, you know, Remember when I had that fundraiser for Barack Obama in 2007? <laughs> well, okay, I, I'm the bold one is the one I'm inviting. <laughs> you get the picture. <laughs> I was going to ask, while you're here, are you prepared to make any Democratic primary endorsements and make news on our podcast? <laughs> I don't know that my endorsements matter at all, but, but on a personal level, I'm waiting for the one or two or three that really put the whole package together. Okay. Aren't you guys? Aren't you? Don't you feel the same way? We're all in the tank for Bernie. We've drank the Kool Aid. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you got to give Bernie the credit for for in the previous election for getting the big ideas out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think he needs more big ideas, not fewer. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think, oh, absolutely. I also think he needs to he needs to kind of uh, freshen them up. You know, not meaning to be really critical, they sound a little bit recycled to me. Do you agree with that? Yeah, he's been saying the same thing for 20, 30 years now. Almost 40. <laughs> well, there, that, that would be recycled, right? <laughs> but um, look, I mean, we're not here to be uh, doing too much second guessing. The point is, you know, uh, boldness is not uh, radical. Boldness is what's necessary. Mm-hmm. In, um, I agree with that. Uh, in your mind, do you think... What do you well? What do you think of the Green New Deal? Is that is that kind of what we're ask you're asking for in terms of boldness and like a call to action? Maybe not so much specifics at this point, but a direction like the direction of so, the wind. Uh, so so uh, I've spent so I would say there are two major sponsors of the Green New Deal: uh, AOC and Ed Markey. You agree with me so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're yeah. The, they're who introduced it. Yeah. Yeah, so I spent a lot of I've spent a lot of time with Ed Markey. I um, don't want to jump the gun, but I think you'll be seeing a bill introduced in May that uh, gives real substance to the vision of the uh, uh, of the Green New Deal, with it, meaning not betraying it, but living up to it, living up to its call to action. And I think you guys will like it. And if you you know whether you like it or not, call me back and we'll talk about it. <laughs> I, uh, if, if my prediction comes true, which I actually am pretty sure it will. Um, and then the only other thing I'd ask you, and I kind of have to go now, but the only other thing I'd ask you is, could you arrange for me to have a cup of coffee with AOC? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, met her and uh, I performed for her a while ago, so I don't have an in more than anyone else, but I do have an email for you. <laughs> That's, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be happy to email a smiley face. 
Um, but Reed, if before you go, you have time to answer a miscellaneous FCC question. I might have one, one or two. One, one miscellaneous question happily accepted. What is it? Uh, when you were in the FCC from 1993 to 97, uh, were you the guy in charge of finding Howard Stern? Um, yes. You did. <laughs> I'm just curious yes. about in a job like that, how often Howard Stern was brought to your attention <laughs> while you're trying to work on the internet. You know, uh, one, uh, one time would be too much. Uh, <laughs> uh, Howard Stern, um, you know, Howard Stern, who I would just add parenthetically, was a big buddy of Donald Trump in those years. But, uh, <laughs> I just I just mentioned that, you know, by way of character assassination. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Howard Stern uh, went on the radio and uh, said that he hoped that I would get cancer. And <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's not really nice, you know. <laughs> Like even people I really don't like, I really don't feel that way. <laughs> uh, so what does that mean? Is that why we find him? No, that's not why we find him. The reason we find him is because the law did require it. Um, and I felt like, you know, you got to do what the law says when you're in government. Um, you may read in the Mueller report that not a hundred percent of Americans feel that way, but in any case, um, that's why we find him. But you might be interested to know that I then had a meeting with his boss. And I said, look, we had to meet up this fine. You know, if you're willing to tell Howard to cool it, I'd be happy to compromise on the fine because I'm a I'm a practical guy. And he said, I'll, I'll go talk to Howard about it. And apparently Howard told him, oh, I'd rather that the guy get cancer and died rather than compromise with him. So that was what that's what that's what happened with Howard Stern. Well, I just want to say on behalf of the podcast, I appreciate you taking anti-fascist direct action against some, someone who platformed Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. See y'all. Thank you so much Thanks. for your time. The book is A Crisis Wasted, Barack Obama's Defining Decisions, and I found it a great read if you're interested in the uh, the inside history of the first days and uh, first two years in particular of the Obama administration. Really recommend checking it out. Puts a lot of color on the uh, things that we've seen coming through today. Uh, thank you so much, Reed Hunt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 All right. So you've uh, just heard the, our interview with Reed Hunt, the author of the book, A Crisis Wasted. And, uh, you know, if we were nervous, it's because this is our first big power player in Washington. We had a conversation. So our with. first former FCC. A chair. lot of a lot of pressure. You know, I flubbed my Howard Stern joke because I got it caught in my throat and didn't stick the landing. But overall, I thought it was a very interesting conversation. And it is why I thought the book was interesting in that there's been a lot of there have been books critical of Obama. But this is kind of the first one from an insider in the Obama transition, you know. And also, oh, my God, your mind races with, like, what combinations of words could I use to totally blow this? <laughs> Just get him to, like, uh, hang up and threaten to sue if you put it out there. I really wanted to ask him about his stance on man boobs on TV because he was the FCC chair. Because, I mean, honestly, why we let those things fly free? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's too bad we couldn't keep him on another 10 minutes because then we could have put Howard Stern on the line. <laughs> it's hard to get the scheduling to work out, but Stern is... Oh, he I was mean, almost there. He, if we had him for 10 more minutes, we could have gotten Artie Lang to join, and Artie has a lot of things to say to this guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I guess like another question I didn't get to ask him, and I guess I just got to Google it now, is I was going to ask him why I live in Queens, New York, and I can only get Spectrum Internet, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of... It's a we, fucking monopoly. It's fucking... Because oh, it's, yeah. it's not a public utility, right? but there's only... it's. And I'm told it's not a monopoly either, so what the fuck? But it is. Oh, I it's mean, an all, well, yeah, it's a regional monopoly, yeah, but they're not exactly. willing to admit that. <laughs> and because they also probably get it off on a technicality where they say, oh, Verizon uh, or something also. Or, you know, you can do dial-up. We actually did ask him that, and then the phone just cut out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sure why. I think it's because I have Verizon internet here. <laughs> Steven got shot through the window. <laughs> but actually, in, in seriousness, I did want to ask him about the um, the Communications Act that was passed while he was um, uh, the FCC chairman, because that probably played a role in why you know you only have spectrum uh, it it was a lot of like free market reforms towards uh communications and i i i suspect that at the time you know he he was um you know he he had a lot of like um a lot of decent foresight in expanding uh you know communications to make room for the internet and the advance of technology but at the same time it allowed for a lot of uh 
functional monopolies to be created, such as Sinclair Media or uh, what is it, iHeart Radio, yeah. that that group. Um, right. But they bring me Ariana Grande, Andy. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I, no, I mean, just honestly, I don't know enough about the Telecommunications Act. I know about, like, Section 230 is what they always talk about with Facebook, that, like, essentially it says if you publish something, or no, if people write in your comment section on a website, you're not liable for that, which, oh, really? I, which I agree with, but essentially Facebook and these other people have used this to become news publishers while pretending they are not news publishers, mm, you gotcha, know? Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but, but again, I don't know enough about, uh, the communications act, but, uh, you know, maybe I could always send him an email question and get his response to it. I um, want to ask him what it was like to live in DC pre today where there's a new spin every day, but during the Monica Lewinsky days, cause he knew Bill Clinton at one point. Right. And so to open the paper or turn on the TV and be like, Oh, looks like Bill's getting head in the fucking Oval Office. <laughs> like, how does that feel? I mean, I guess, you know, what? we, uh, some of us like we did open mics with Michelle Wolf, uh-huh. so you know there's kind of like we can kind of approximate that feeling. <laughs> I don't know. She mics- pissed off the president. Yeah, all right. If she's getting head in a, a p- political office room, then maybe you've got an argument there. But until then. I think your wolf stories doesn't pan to his. I knew Bill Clinton, and then later on, an intern blew his cock. I mean, everyone gets blown. I'm just saying that like we have the, kind of an the idea. language gets salty as soon as the FCC yeah, chairman hangs I up. Think so. <laughs> this is the future he built for us. The future of the internet. Did, did you guys swear a single time? I don't think I did. I said the N word a few times <laughs> before I got here. All right. I did really want to make a Bapa Booey joke during the Howard Stern thing, <laughs> but I couldn't get one together. I was going to ask him if they had a, a file cabinet at the FCC for like B for Bapa Booey and like <laughs> a E for Eric the Midget. Was there, was there a swear jar? No. I just love the that swear he, jar at the FCC. He was like, I mean, we find him, but only because he said I should die of cancer. <laughs> I like when I asked him that question. I had no, I had no idea Howard Stern said he should die of cancer. <laughs> That wasn't why they find him. I just wanted to make that correction. Oh, right. gotcha. I wasn't listening to the show we just made. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was a fun episode. I, uh, I'm would... sorry I didn't bring my keyboard so we could do the fart drops while he was on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you could have played the bop booey while he was answering <laughs> the question. It would have been nice to have a couple of soccer tummies <laughs> during that. You'd yeah, be like, oh, know. yeah, that reminds me of uh, this uh, summer afternoon when I met Richard Nixon on a golf course. And... <laughs> what did you think, audience? Did you like us pretending to be serious journalists instead of just complete <laughs> jackasses? <laughs> did you like that 45-minute experimentation we just did where we all tried to sound smart and be on our best behavior for the FCC chairman? <laughs> I mean, if there's a guest to be, like, kind for, it's this guy. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I very much do appreciate him taking the time to call us. And I, I did, I read this book, and I think, you know, what I think what I was trying to say, I don't know if I expressed that right, was essentially we who are, like, former Obama voters, former people who were very much inspired by Obama, we know the broad strokes, you know, we know something went wrong. But if you want to actually get into the meetings that took place before and immediately after Obama took office, he has a lot of insider interviews, and he paints a pretty compelling and damning picture of just Obama's advisors hiding information from him um, and just giving him kind of the neoliberal consensus as it's already a done decision, you know. So, I mean, it made me on one hand, more sympathetic to Obama, but on the other hand, he's a smart enough guy. The buck stops with him. He should have known better than to pick these people and rely on these people. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it echoed uh, a actually fairly common criticism of the um, early Obama years, which is that, and it, it's, it's interesting. It, uh, it's an interesting kind of look at American politics, which was that the, um, one of the, the running criticisms was that he didn't have many contacts in politics Mm -hmm. and so essentially he took on the clinton team and his first term was essentially a third clinton term uh which it's it's one of those things where especially when you have like major positions it's it's a bit astounding that you know he he didn't have a thought for like um some there he didn't have a thought for you know uh, some economists who might be better suited to handle the housing crisis than former Clintonites. Um, yeah. 
And the lack of the lack of vision and kind of a need for a call to action is shared between Obama and his advisors. It's not like only a, it's not um, a one yeah. person thing. Uh, well, sometimes you people who are like critical in Obama and willing to even sort of tut tut him about not having vision or whatnot, right. they still place most of the blame or even sometimes all the blame on like well he's misled by Geithner or someone. Right, right. And um, it was a sort of a victim of history in a way of like he you know what could he do in the face of a horrible financial crisis and somehow forgetting that um they had control of both houses for almost two years hmm. i like how larry summers blew the financial crisis then had the audacity to go back to harvard and say women couldn't do math <laughs> Uh, one other thing I actually didn't get to ask him about, but was in this book, and it's like just worth kind of remembering. He actually says this on page like four or five of the book. When President Jimmy Carter came into office, he actually had veto-proof majorities in you know both bodies because, of course, this was right after Nixon and Watergate. Mm-hmm. And Democrats in Congress actually proposed you know job guarantee, universal basic income, single payer, and Carter was opposed to those things. And you know there was like some inflation going on and such, but it is just like. Essentially, what I wanted to make the point is, you know, these proposals are all treated as like extreme and radical and like Trotskyite ideas. But it's like, no, I mean, going back to Jimmy Carter, this was the mainstream of Democrats in Congress. Right. And we're just seeing that come back now. I'm really glad that you brought up how bad Carter is. <laughs> <laughs> because for some reason, people give him a pass because he was an engineer or whatever. Right. Because right. he was such a good guy. He built houses. I try to I try to uh, never let people forget the failures of Carter when we bring up inflation. <laughs> Um, it, well, he also, he campaigned as a strong anti-nuclear advocate. And then, um, in, oh, what's the Pentagon paper guy's names? Ellsberg. Ellsberg. In Ellsberg's book, uh, the doomsday clock or the, uh, doomsday machine, he, uh, he says that Carter came in and essentially the, uh, national security apparatus, they just scared the shit out of him and he became pro nukes, hmm. um, because, essentially you can kind of, I, I guess there's a lot of like, you know, manipulation of the president that goes on from these, um, you know, types of like bureaucratic groups with, uh, certain like vested interests. The, and, uh, uh, the CIA chief took him aside and said, I don't have to hope you die of cancer. I can make you <laughs> die of cancer. But guys, his we in- have the gun. We have the cancer gun. <laughs> his initials are JC like Jesus Christ. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Liberals fall over themselves over the guy. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, we wish you a speedy recovery, President Carter. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I guess on my I was going to say, is he dying of something? And then I realized he outlived like uh, the two successive presidents after him. Like, of course he's dying <laughs> of something. <laughs> you don't have to feel bad, Andy. Yeah. The FCC chairman's not going to be up our ass. I guess I was just going to say to the listeners here, we are thinking about probably next month launching a Patreon, and we would like to hear your ideas for it. You know, um, I know there's a ton of podcasts, many of them better than ours, that uh, you may or may not already give $5 a month to. But uh, If you give $10, Sean will pronounce it Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but I guess, you know, we want to make an entertaining podcast. We want to also hopefully provide some sort of uh, repository of information on billionaires. And we would like to hear from you, you know, things you like, things you don't like, things you want for us to do for the Patreon. Because I think right now our idea is essentially we would do an extra billionaire every week. And then maybe at the end of the month, we would just kind of do a wrap up episode where we talk about what we talked about that month. Um, but, you know, if, uh, if there are things, if you are a person, who would consider giving us money, we will give you a lot of weight in terms of making decisions uh, for us and about the direction of the podcast. But it, in, in all honesty, it is a uh, collaborative effort between us and the listeners. So we, we want to hear from you, and uh, we will keep you posted about our plans. And I would like us to make more money than Mueller, she wrote, because I <laughs> just got in a Twitter fight with them, and I, it would just be so nice to make more money than them. They charge $30 for their live show. Hmm. Also, we're going to be switching to a Tuesday-Thursday release schedule because yeah. uh, I don't want to fucking be up all night to get it out on, by Monday morning. <laughs> so that's that's the reality of it. But uh, you're going to get uh, G-Steaks on the two T's, if you know what I mean. We did not realize I in, this, not know what you mean. in this worker-owned cooperative, we were exploiting Yogi's labor. <laughs> <laughs> and we did not realize because we are petite bourgeoisie. 
That's another thing. If you're if you're into workers' co-ops and worker control of the economy, we are one. So. That's right. That's right. We are going to incorporate it as a worker-owned pot. I feel like that's kind of a marketing gimmick, though. I mean, technically, it's true. Every one of us is going to have a 25% share. I did, I did ask David Harvey at his uh, Capital Lectures uh, whether worker-owned cooperatives are sustainable in the long term of Marxism, and he said, uh, or at least and he said, Marxist your podcast will fail. Fracture. <laughs> uh, you know what? Long story short, yeah, he did. So that's ex- yeah. absolutely fucking stupid. Ultimately, yes. we have to pay the bank. You know, and even though we are a worker-owned cooperative, we will still be hiring um, uh, third-world children to do our social media because we subscribe to the Bernie Sanders imperialist model of socialism, <laughs> where it's okay for us to exploit um, the downtrodden. <laughs> And have them doing uh, fucking manual posting labor for three cents an hour on our behalfs, right? Socialism in one country. <laughs> one. A one. single country. In one Brooklyn apartment. <laughs> uh. All right, yeah. And with that, this has been Grub Stickers. I'm Yogi Paul. Those kids are really good at posting. <laughs> I'm Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. Uh, I'm Sean McCarthy. One more time. The book is A Crisis Wasted, uh, Barack Obama's Defining Decisions. It's by Reed Hunt. And uh, as much as we joke around, we do very much appreciate uh, Reed Hunt joining us today. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks. That was amazing. Dad and Grandpa don't hate each other. The Lubeckis got most of their house back. All because Jesus showed up. Bobby, what are you talking about? That guy, a carpenter, worked a miracle. His name was J.C., rode in a limo. Him? You thought that was... (laughs) 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 Well, he's nobody but a one-turban painted farmer. Man wore a sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Handpacked by the OPEC. (laughs) 